Well, good morning. And as Tim mentioned, um, the enormous size of the passage, particularly when you're considering it from a sermon perspective, uh, may be a little intimidating, uh, particularly when you're looking at a, a very rich passage of Scripture, like the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Um, I'm not sure if they didn't get word that I don't really have a hard time filling up uh, the time given for a sermon. Uh, so I don't know if they were maybe thinking that they could support and make me feel comfortable in providing a lot of information. And maybe by the time I finished, it might be uh, within time. So hopefully uh, the restaurants won't close before I'm finished. Um, at least 24-hour places. Um, but there will be some place out there. But I just want to make it very clear that um, I consider this a great privilege. Um, I know the, the value of the pulpit. Uh, I know the um, responsibilities given to those who speak from God's Word. And so I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I trust that uh, you will not see Mark, but that you'll see Christ as we look at the Word today. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for, in your providence, bringing us together today. Thank you for the wonderful songs that we can sing, giving you honor and praise, reflecting upon what you have done for us out of your great mercy and love, exposing us to your truth, to your glory. And we thank you, Lord, that it is all because of what we have in your word. Thank you that you have not left me alone to speak before your people, people that Christ shed his blood for on my own. But you have given me your word, and I pray, Lord, today that I would be faithful. But I also pray that you give us ears to hear. Open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that are found in your law. Help us to meditate upon them. And help us, as your spirit works within us, to become more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. The world in which we live in has evil and as wicked as we see it continue in its own self-destruction causes us who are believers to get excited about some of the smallest things in life. If you're a sports fan, then you get really excited when you hear an athlete make a statement about their faith or a personality from a television program or maybe a movie star take a stand on their Christian values. And every once in a while, a political figure will make a statement that will draw our attention to what they believe in. And what we hope for is a public figure to some degree that will provide an example of the gospel. Someone who will truly demonstrate with their life what it means to live what we've learned even in our Christian growth groups this morning about being a sinner, being an enemy of God and then miraculously changed by His Spirit so that we now call Him Father. However, it often becomes a disappointing display of shallow, cliche-laden lives. We hear people talk about, I want to thank the Lord for this and that's about it. But we hear somebody say that, well, my faith helped me overcome whatever struggles that they might have gone through. 
I work with a lady who has a son that's very involved in sports, and I remember her telling me, she knowing that I'm a believer, that her son picked up this book of a professional athlete that all of us, I'm sure, would be familiar with if I mentioned his name. And that this young person, who to my knowledge does not know Christ as his Savior, read this book. And so I was eager to find out, well, what was the impression made? What did your son think about this particular athlete? And her response was simply this. Well, it was very inspiring. It showed him how to overcome things to become the best that he can be. Unfortunately, that's not the Gospel. The Gospel doesn't teach us how to be the best that we can be. The Gospel tells us how we're incapable of being the best at anything other than a sinner. Now again, it's easy for me to say these sorts of things because I'm not a professional athlete. I'm not a public figure. I'm not a politician. Yet the Gospel supersedes all of that. Being publicly accepted these days for those who are and for those of us who are not becomes more the goal of being a slave to Christ as Paul speaks about here in our text. Paul, in the context of pronouncing a curse on anyone who preaches a different gospel than what he preached, makes a point, do you really think that I'm out to please people? Or do you think by what you're hearing me say that I'm trying to please God? Well, when we look at the church in general today, we may come to the conclusion that the church hasn't gotten it. Consider the area of science. Evolutionary thinking does not find its roots in the Bible. However, there are many within Christianity who, in an effort to become respected by the scholars or to gain credibility with those who are intellectuals, have succumbed to some meshing of what God has said that He did and what science itself cannot explain. Consider religion. We live in a world in which there are many. However, when we read the Scriptures, we read particularly where Solomon is dedicating the temple to the Lord, we read that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. That's pretty clear. However, there are many Christians who seek to find common ground with anybody who shares a secondary cause for the sake of unity. And in doing so, they water down the very truth of God and the God of the truth. Consider public relations or human relations. The Bible makes it clear that all mankind is made in the likeness of God. The Bible goes on to say that we've all fallen, but there are those even within Christianity who want to seek above judging people. We want to respect each other, inviting sinners, whether they be homosexuals or adulterers or alcoholics or thieves or murderers or any of the such, like we once walked before. To tell them, just come as you are. 
without completing the thought of go and sin no more. Loving sinners and hating sin requires us to confront sin in love. And there's no better place for the gospel to shine beautifully than when we do that. Let me talk about the area of worship, which includes not only music but preaching. In the context of Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That seems to indicate that our singing should be grounded in doctrine. That is the word of Christ. However, culture has come into the church and has told us that we need to worry more about what the unbeliever thinks about music, what the unbeliever thinks about dialogue, what the unbeliever thinks about lecturing or any other type of sharing of truth. Rather than saying that we have truth and we need to not only speak it, but we sing it, we declare it in all different types of worship, but it's to be grounded in the Word of God. Now, we could go on and I could make a sermon out of any of these issues here. But what do these things have in common? These are issues in which the church who has been given stewardship of the Word of God has basically removed the Word of God in order to accommodate something that is pleasing to the flesh, something that is carnal, something that in an effort to reach people does nothing more than massage people. And make them feel better about themselves. Or make them feel like well, there's something really good in you. we just got to bring it out. But what happened? Churches replaced serving God with finding favor with men. They sacrificed God's word in the process. And the deteriorating impact can be seen in these areas. How much more can we see than the gospel? As Pastor Tim mentioned as we started our study in the book of Galatians. That the gospel needs no additives. That it is simply everything and all things that we need to know who Christ is and how we can be reconciled to Him. There's competitors to that, though. We have different types of gospels. We have a, uh, a, a gospel out there for liberation, whether it be a black liberation gospel or a, a Latin American liberation gospel, things that simply fool people into thinking that Jesus Christ came to liberate people in an earthly sense. There are those who have changed it into a social gospel that as long as we can feed people and give something to drink to people who are thirsty, then we have accomplished what Jesus Christ has called us to do. Now, those things in and of themselves not only are uh, not wrong, they're part of our sharing the gospel, but it's not the gospel itself. Ultimately, there are those in the world in which we live who have simply made the gospel a universal call that God is love, God loves everybody, and there's absolutely no possible way that a God who loves His creation so much would ever send it to eternal judgment. So how do we make sure that we don't fall prey to those or any other types of counterfeits? How do we make sure that we have the right gospel? Well, Paul, I think, indicates here, because if anybody needed the right gospel, it was Paul. If you, if you start pronouncing curses on people and telling them, you better make sure you got the gospel right, you better have the right one, right? But at the same time, if you have the right gospel, I think we need to be as bold as Paul in defending it. 
So how do we make sure we have the right one? Well, first of all, we need to make sure we have the true gospel as it is required or revealed by God, not according to man. And also that the true gospel is one that glorifies God, not man. Here in Galatians chapter 1, as we pick up from where we last left, where Paul says in verse 10, For I am now seeking the for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Pretty clear that what he is about to reveal to us about the gospel is something that did not originate with him. Declaring the source of the gospel, if you will. That we find in verses 11 and 12 that it's not for man. For I would have you know, brethren, by, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. Paul declares, let me make it very clear. I don't want any confusion about this. Let me clarify that the gospel that I'm preaching is not according to man. In other words, it's not by man's authority. Man did not bring this to, to be. He did not author this gospel. As one commentator put it, it's not something that man made up. The world is full of religious systems, but the litmus test, if you ever want to know if a cult or something that's called a cult or something that may be a denomination or something that claims to be of some measure of truth, the one way you can always determine if it is, what does it say about Jesus Christ? Who is He? Whether you're speaking to a Mormon or you're speaking to a Muslim, whether you're speaking to a Hindu or whether you're speaking to a charismatic, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? We, we can't make that up. Jesus Christ is only revealed in His Word. Paul goes on to describe how it's not according to man, first of all, and that it's not received from man. Now, Paul lived in a day, and he lived within a Jewish culture in which a lot of what he believed and what he lived for was passed down according to tradition. The Jews had the halakha, as he refers to later in verse 14, or oral traditions. Jesus speaks about these in his own ministry in Matthew chapter 15, verses 6 through 9, for he says, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Paul made it very clear that what I'm teaching you, the gospel that I'm preaching, is not according to tradition. It is not according to what we have added to the law. By the time Jesus Christ arrived on this earth for His ministry, the Jews and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the scholars, had basically taken what Moses had given and multiplied it. That's... Hard enough, it's impossible to fulfill the law in our flesh to begin with. But when you start adding along human traditions, then that cuts everybody out and then some. Even for those who thought they were righteous, well, I'm sorry, we just made up a rule. You don't count. Oh, you did this, well, let's make up another. Nope, you didn't do it good enough. And they were continually adding things to make it even more stringent. But Paul says, let me make it clear, that's not what happened here. 
Not only was it not received from man, but it was also not taught by man. And we have to be careful here because Paul's not speaking of how we communicate the gospel to one another in a world that needs Christ. But what he is speaking of is the gospel that he received, that it wasn't taught to him by somebody else. Paul goes on in his biographical sketch here to make it very clear. He goes to great lengths to make it clear that he did not talk to somebody else and he got the gospel from someone else. He was trying to in this passage, and perhaps some of you in your study Bibles will have even a title there, Paul defending his apostleship. He's trying to make it very clear the gospel I'm preaching, I'm just not a secondary person here. It was revealed to me not according to man. It wasn't instructed from some, someone else's mouth, literally speaking. Now that's how we do it today, because we already have the gospel. But Paul, Paul was making it very clear, he did not receive it from Peter or James or any other apostle. He was getting it straight from God. So as we go on and look in verse 12, For I neither received it for man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So while we're taught, like the Galatians were, Paul received it not from man, but he received it from God as it was revealed through Jesus Christ. Turn, if you will, over back a few pages to your left. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in beginning in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul begins by saying, we're not trying to sneak anything in. We're not trying to deceive anybody. We're not making stuff up to make it palatable to you. We don't want to be shameful. But rather, we are giving you the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Paul says that the gospel is clear. The gospel is a revealing of who Jesus Christ is. And for those of who don't accept it, it's because they're perishing. Their eyes haven't been opened to see it. But make no doubt about it that we're not trying to come in with clever words. We're just simply trying to show you who Jesus is. And guess what we do today to reach those who are lost? The same thing. All we want to do is to show them who Jesus is. It's not to impress them with who we are or how we dress or what our services are like or what facilities we have or how much money we raise or how much money we give. We do all of those things. So we just simply say, here's Jesus. See Him in all of His glory. We want to make manifest Jesus Christ, who is the image of the very God that we serve. He goes on to say, We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves is your slaves for Jesus' sake. And if anybody can't see that, they're perishing and it's they're blinded. We were blind. 
before we saw Christ. It wasn't something rooted in us if we just went to a number of counseling sessions or if we read a few self-help books or if we watched a certain preacher or went to a conference or a seminar. It wasn't inside of us. We were blind to that. But, God said, light shall shine out of darkness. That God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. As we were talking about in our Christian growth group this morning. Of, we, we didn't want to see it. We didn't care. What we did see of it, we didn't like. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God, while we were yet sinners, but God, there's a lot of really good but God in Scripture. That's what makes the difference because it is God who allows out of darkness the light to shine in the face of Jesus Christ so that to those of us who have by grace received it, we look upon the face of Christ with joy. We rejoice in what Jesus Christ was done. We don't get mad because Jesus points out that we're failures. We don't get mad because, well, it's not my fault. We proclaim with joy and gladness that thank you for opening my eyes that in my sin I'm lost. But in your sacrifice, in your atoning work on the cross that satisfied every ounce of God's wrath on my behalf has been given to me. Not requested by me, not earned by me, not paid for by me, by any means. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ, according to His Word, for His glory alone. That is the Gospel. That is, as Pastor Tim put it, being saved from God, being saved by God, and being saved for God. It's very simple. But it had to shine out of darkness. And Paul said that that Gospel, I didn't come up with it. But it was revealed to me through Jesus Christ. And God continues through the apostles to spread that message. God chooses through His Holy Spirit to use the apostles. Now, who are the apostles? Now, we have to distinguish them from the general term apostle being simply one who was sent out. But we look at it even as we find back in the Gospels of Jesus. Jesus sent out as many as 70 people at one time. But he goes on to make it clear that there were 12 and he calls them by name that he sent out with power to work signs and wonders and to preach the kingdom. Those are the apostles we're speaking about today. That office of apostle. Those who were, as the Bible puts it, are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Savior. Now, how do we come up and determine that? Well, we see that when Judas Iscariot, who was a false follower, had ended his life, Jesus commissioning his now eleven 
to go forth. Those 11 said, you know what the Scriptures say, we need to find a replacement. So we need to find somebody who has heard, been taught by, and has seen the resurrected Christ. So they began to make their choice. Paul himself includes himself as such a person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he goes on to say, Then he appeared to James, speaking of the resurrected Savior, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So not only does Paul here claim to be a, an apostle because he has seen the resurrected Savior, he also pretty much comes to the conclusion that I'm the last one. The least of all. He, he appeared to me last of all. The apostle also is someone who is commissioned by Christ himself. I mentioned earlier that in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus calls and even afterwards Acts chapter 1 verse 24 through 26 you Lord know the hearts of all men show which one of these two you have chosen Acts chapter 26 speaking of Paul in his own biographical testimony and I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to these things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now we've all been given a great commission to go out and preach and teach and to make disciples of all nations. But there are specific ones who have been called by name who have seen with their eyes the risen Savior. And to those we give the title Apostle. And it is through the Apostles that Paul uses to build his church. Even as we read in Ephesians that the Apostles themselves uh, were the foundation. Building upon the foundation of Christ, the Savior. As the rock. But you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure stands and is built and put together. So the apostles are a very specific group of people. And you may, you may say, well, how in the world do we have the gospel today if we don't have any apostles? Well, I'm glad you asked. When the apostles no longer lived upon the earth. Sounds like a dinosaur. But when the apostles were gone, when they had gone to be with Christ through death, most of whom went through martyrdom, at least that's what tradition tells us, they left us that which, again, according to the Holy Spirit, is given for us and for our purposes, and that is the Holy Scriptures. Scriptural authority is equal to apostolic authority. That's the reason why when we hear individuals today claim to be an apostle, they're equating themselves with the Word of God. You don't have to be the Pope these days to have authority to speak whatever is true or to speak on an issue. You can just simply call yourself an apostle and therefore you need to listen to me. However, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we have 
God's word, and that is sufficient. If you will, turn over to Second Peter. And as we continue studying this second chapter of Galatians, it will seem even more ironic that uh, we're looking at Peter's letter to the church concerning scriptural authority because he refers to Paul. Now, if you begin looking there in chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Those apostles, being moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God, and we have it in the Scriptures. They have to understand, Peter was comparing this situation uh, to his own experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. He and two other disciples went up with Christ and Christ transfigured Himself in all of His glory so that they saw it. Yet Peter says, we have a much more sure word of prophecy in the written Scriptures than even what I saw with my eyes. I don't know about you, but I'm one who likes to go by what I see. It's not right. We should live by faith, not by sight, but... Let's face it, life requires us to judge, make judgments on what we see. And I'm foolish enough to think in my flesh that if I had seen a transfigured Christ, huh, that's all I would need. Thankfully though, God reveals to me what happened in the lives of the apostles who saw that. What was happening right before He was crucified on a cross, while He was being crucified on a cross, and what happened immediately after He was crucified on a cross. And after they saw the resurrected Savior. And then 40 more days of Him teaching about the kingdom. And then even through instances that happened throughout church history. That we need something sure and we have it within the Word of God. We have a prophetic word made more sure. If you'll turn over to chapter 3 of the same letter, Second Peter. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, and he's speaking about this promise that Christ has made to us for that which is new to come. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, and as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which he, the untaught or un, and unstable distort, as they do also rest in the Scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Where do we get our solid ground from? Where do we get our foundation? How do we stand against evil and wrong teachings? How do we defend ourselves against those who are trying to take advantage of those who want to live by faith, even if such blind faith carries them into self-destruction? On the Scriptures. Remember those letters that Paul wrote to you? You can believe it. Just as you're believing what I'm telling you. What we have in this prophetic word is sure and it's dependable. 
It's authoritative. So that when we look back in chapter 1, verse 3, and I'll just quickly read this, uh, that we have, uh, seeing that this His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. What else do you need? you need anything more than to live? Do you need anything more to live a godly life? No. Anything beyond that is, is too much. They may say, well, wait a minute, then my English book and my math book and my history book and all those other things are unnecessary. No, everything that pertains to life, everything that you need to know what life is about, everything you know for the purpose that you've been given to live is found in the Scriptures. He's revealed it through Jesus Christ. How do we have Jesus Christ? It's revealed to us through His Word. We see Christ in His Word. That's how God shines through the darkness of our lives so that we can see the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul makes it very clear. Let me, let me make sure you're not confused about anything that I did not receive this gospel from man. I did, however, receive it from God as He revealed to me Jesus Christ. And just as I, as I am apostle, speaking of Paul, you can trust what the apostles have said through the written word and that's our source of truth. That's how we can go back and when somebody speaks about evolution, you know what? Uh, great try there, guys. But you know what? God's already revealed to me how He did it. He spoke it. When we try to relate to other people who are living in sinful lifestyles, it's not what I think about it. It's not what my opinion is about it. God's already spoken on it. When it comes to uh, religion, yeah, we're all trying to find our place in this world, right? But we already have the true religion. There's only one God. And we're to worship no other. We're not to make any others. When it comes to worship, we can just, what does the Bible say about it? Let's let's not try to worry about surveys or or programs. What does the Bible say? It's simple. However, as we read in the book of Galatians, it didn't take 2,000 years for us to get to this point. There were struggles, there were strifes within the church from day one. Look at early in the book of Acts. They're already trying to figure out, now who's going to take care of these witnesses? Now now who's going to make sure? There, There were situations that were going on that revealed our humanity. But we have the Word of God to give us guidance. Is our source of truth. And Paul uses his biographical experience here, his, his sketch, if you will, to reveal that. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul thought more about his traditions to the point where he was willing to kill Christians to make himself look that much better compared to his other contemporaries who were trying to do the same thing. Look how great of a Jew I am because I'm eliminating these, these Christians. I mean, you could substitute Paul's zeal here for people in the 20th century who tried to eliminate the Jews. Bloodthirsty. 
the world's going to be better if we just get rid of them. And Paul says, you remember that about me. But again, here we go in verse 15. What? But God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might uh, preach Him among the Gentiles. There you go. It's not for man. (laughs) If it was from this man, it would absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ. If it was from this man, the gospel would be, I finally got rid of him. Got rid of all of his followers. Now we can finally pursue this holy call to, to perfection as a Jew. We can finally establish the kingdom of David once again. And we can finally get all these Christians out of the way. I done it. If it was for man. But Paul says it wasn't for man. It was from God. And God graciously was pleased Just as Jeremiah was called in his mother's womb, Paul said, God chose me, separated me to do His work in His divine wisdom and knowledge. Again, can't relate to that very well. If I'm going to pick somebody who's going to be a great preacher of the Gospel, I'm going to pick somebody who hasn't spent so much time in his life destroying Christians. Somebody who's a little more sympathetic to the cause. But God, in His wisdom and foreknowledge, knew exactly what Paul was going to do with his life, knowing that it was, as Paul puts it, that I might be a trophy of His grace. Remember what Paul says to Timothy? That God came into the world to save sinners. Of whom? Everybody else. I topped the list. Why? So that he may reveal something about himself through me. Not so he could reveal something about me, but so that he could reveal something about himself, that being his love and his mercy and his grace. What a better backdrop than Paul's life seeing God's grace. Now I can relate to that. Because when I get to glory, I want to argue with Paul. Paul, I realize that your testimony was horrible. I realize you kill a lot of people physically. But you know what? I'm the chief. I'm the chief. Of course, we know, if our eyes have been opened, that we're all the chief. We tie for that spot. None of us are any less needful of the grace demonstrated on the cross. And God was pleased to do that. And Paul intentionally kept himself from the other apostles. He didn't go to Jerusalem. Well, he did, but they you know, escaped him quickly out. To make it very clear that I'm not a part of this group. If you think that I'm just getting something from them, if you think I'm a spy, no, I separated myself. I didn't go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And there are those who believe that this time period is where Paul in the wilderness was able to be taught by Christ Himself. I'd love to find a Scripture passage for that. I believe it happened. I don't, I'm not sure exactly how or when or where. But Paul saw Christ and was taught by Him. So that three years later, 
He comes up, verse 18, uh, to do something that, well, let's just face it, was necessary, wasn't easy, wasn't natural. But Paul is now going to defend not only himself, but he was going to defend the truth of the gospel. And that's something we've been called to today. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you will allow me just to, to give a brief half a page description of something he said. Uh, it, Spurgeon says, but nowadays, you know, you are told, oh, it does not matter what you believe. Doctrines are nothing. Just so with denominations. They want to amalgamate us all. We differ in various doctrines, and therefore some of us must be wrong if we hold doctrines that are directly hostile to each other. But we're told you're all right. Now, I cannot see that. If I say one thing and another man says another, how about all that is holy can both speak the truth? Shall black and white be the same color? Shall falsehood and truth be the same? When they shall be and fire shall sleep in the same cradle with the waves of the ocean, then shall we agree to amalgamate ourselves with those who deny our doctrines or speak evil of what we believe to be the gospel. My brethren, no man has any right to absolve your judgment from allegiance to God. No man has a right to, de- to believe what he likes. He is to believe what God tells him, and if he does not believe that, he is responsible to God. I beseech you, therefore, if you would avoid heresies and bring the church to a glorious union, read the Scriptures. And keep your faith on this. God has said it. Paul, in going back some 17 years now, probably after his conversion, is not only going to defend his apostleship, but he's also going to defend the truth of the gospel that he's been preaching. Why? Because just like Haddon Spurgeon discovered centuries later, that there are those who are trying to mix it with things that are false. There are those who are seeking unity at the expense of the truth. There are those who will weasel their way in to try to say, well, we're really not all that different. After all, we have the same social causes. We enjoy the same types of fun and fellowship. Is there really that much difference? Paul would say yes. Now, in chapter 2, it was because of a revelation, verse 2, that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private. Now, why would he do so in private? Well, you're not going to cast your, your wisdom before foolish people. And Paul understood that while he wasn't very familiar with the leadership, as a matter of fact, he puts it this way, the ones who seem to be in charge, it's an interesting translation there because it just kind of leads it to the imagination. What is, what is it that they seem to be? Our translators are pretty much in agreement that, well, those who seem to be leaders, those who seem to be the pillars of the church, those who seem to be the apostles. And you got to remember, 17 years at least, Paul has not had any interaction with them except for a little bit of time with Peter when he was first there. So he goes back, he goes into the church, and he finds those who appear to be the leaders, and he says, I need to talk to you guys about something. Now leave these other people out because I don't know who they are. For sure, I I have an idea, and he tells us about it. So I need to speak to you about something. And so he starts telling them about what God has revealed to him. That he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
Verse 3, but not even this, Titus who was with me, though he was Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He understood that there was a problem going on. That as he was revealing his apostleship and defending that, he understood that there were some people who were thinking that, well, if you go preach to the Gentiles, you better make sure of one thing, that you make sure they're circumcised. There's no room in our church for any unclean Gentiles. There's no room in this fellowship for anybody who hasn't followed the law. So Paul goes in to begin with with those who seem to be the leaders and said, listen, God has granted me the privilege. He has sent me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And Titus, my buddy here, he's an example. He hadn't been circumcised. Now there were those who were circumcised in Paul's fellowship for the sake of unity. He didn't want to... And so it's, when you look at this, it, it, it's, it's hard to sometimes fathom. But here at the beginning, Paul wanted to make it very clear. I'm preaching to the Gentiles. Titus is an example. But it was because of the false brethren, verse 4, secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Just want to let you know, guys. I know their game. Not only do I am I secure in what God has called me to do, but I realize that there are people who are trying to add things to the gospel. There's a SEAL team that's come through the church. I saw their T-shirts and their bracelets and the bumper plates on the cars they parked in the primary spots right up there close to the door. And so there were those who were false in the church, as Peter puts it, to those who want to destroy the church with their false doctrine. And as we look later on, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. And I trust that it is everybody's prayer as a member of this church that that's nothing that will depart from this church that's the gospel. I want the gospel to remain here. If there's no other place in Forsyth County or Davidson County or North Carolina or the United States or around the world, if there's nowhere else that you can find it, I at least want to make sure that at Cornerstone Baptist Church you will see the gospel. And we'll fight for it. We'll defend it. We won't argue and bicker about other things, but you know what? There's one thing that we will fight for, and that is the gospel. Why? Because Paul fought for the gospel. It's too important. If without the gospel, you have no church. Without the gospel, you have no Lord. If you have the gospel, you have no life. Without the gospel, all you have is empty, vain, deceptive destruction. And the world is more than happy to cling to that for some reason. Well, I know the reason. The same reason I cling to it. Because it made me feel good. It's what I wanted. But praise God. That even while I was yet still in my sin, Christ died for me. So that I could see that life was not what I thought it was. But it was what God has told me and made clear in His Word. You may recall back in the 1990s that there was a movement of those within evangelicalism 
and the Roman Catholic Church who sought to find some measure of unity. And one of their goals, as it was listed, was to get rid of needlessly divisive disputes. And if left right there, I'm all for that. The 45 years of my life, and all of which I've been in church to some form or fashion, whether somebody carried me in a blanket or whether I walked through the doors myself, I've spent all of my life in church. And I've seen way too many needlessly divisive disputes. But let us all please agree on one thing, that there is one needful divisive dispute, and that is with anyone who wants to add or subtract or distort or substitute the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that requires us to make some very tough decisions. As Paul reveals in his own life. Because not only did kind of making himself evident as an apostle gain him fellowship with the apostles, it also caused him to to confront them. And they, they, they offered... Paul the right hand of fellowship as long as you made sure you know you're doing everything that we're supposed to do with people who are in need. But when Cephas or when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him. Wouldn't you have loved to seen the worship guide that morning? Today's sermon, Paul versus Peter. What would you do? What would you do? Paul realized that there was some hypocrisy going on. I look forward to hearing the messages that go forth from this this passage on because it talks more about our gospel that we have in Christ. But let me close this morning by asking you, where do you take your stand? Paul put it this way, you know, the other apostles, they didn't add anything to me. I'm an apostle because God called me to be one. So therefore, I'm going to act like one. As a believer in Jesus Christ, called by His grace, I, as another believer, really don't add anything to your identity in Christ. So how do we relate to one another? How do we relate into a situation where somebody says, well, uh, you know, I go to church over here, or I, I'm a part of this denomination, or I, I'm a part of this group over there, and you know fundamentally that there's something different about what they believe than what we believe. Not because they have a different carpet color, not because their you know, music is, is a different form, not because uh, that you know, they wear robes, or not, you know, nothing like that. I'm talking about doctrine. Like what Spurgeon was talking about. Things that affect who we are in Christ. I was a little reluctant, but I, I want to share an example. You know, Pastor Tim sort of inspired me with his creativity with the with the seals thing. But I'm trying to to picture in my mind, and you have to remember in the first century where the Apostle Paul, uh, in which he lived, uh, you know, the Greeks were, you know, known for their dramatical presentations. Their plays, their depictions about different events in history. And just imagine in Paul's day if there was 
a Jew who lived in Jerusalem. And he and his, let's just say his sons, who prided themselves in their long tassels, you know, from, from, from their, you know, hats and, and even their sideburns. I mean, they, they were really good. And so they even kind of made fun of people who didn't have long sideburns. And all their life, they were really committed to providing sacrifices in the temple. They, they, they were really good at capturing doves. It was almost as if they had a dynasty in, in collecting doves. And so they were known for that. And they went around telling everybody, hey, I want you to know that my life has been changed by Jesus Christ. You know that Apostle Paul, you know, or the Peter, and, or James? You know, I've, I've listened to them and, and, and we agree. And I just want to let you know that, that Jesus has changed my life. And that you need to be, I'm, I'm sorry, but you need to uh, be circumcised. I started to say baptismal re- regeneration, but that would not be the same picture. Uh, but you need to be circumcised. What would Paul do? Would Paul say, well, you know what? It, you've got quite a following. You've got 12, well, 12,000 people following you, watching you on TV. I mean, uh, going to your dram- dramatical presentations. I'll get this straight. I'm sorry. I'm just, you know. What would Paul do? You're, you're, you're selling a lot of books. You're, you're making quite a famous presentation of the name of Jesus. You're standing on some principles that very few people would do. So therefore, I'm not really going to worry about your, your requirement to be circumcised to be a believer. We'll, we'll, we'll unite just in the name of Christ. That's that's hard. I've got friends and family who go to church. I've got friends and family who go to Baptist churches. I've got a brother who's a deacon in a Southern Baptist church. But if I don't ask real questions as to who are you following, how much of 100% does it take to be 100% right about the gospel? Not for the purpose of making enemies, not for the purpose of getting, having people get mad at me, but for the purpose of exalting the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is His glory shining in His face, revealed by God through His Word? Where am I bold enough to, to take a stand on that? I pray that God will give us wisdom. I pray that God will give us boldness and confidence as it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can truly, when we look at His Word where we get it, that we can truly say uh, that, that Your Word is what's giving me the ability to stand before my enemy. It's Your Word that's giving me strength. That it's Your Word that's protecting me from deceitful things. For your glory.